Good morning, family that is Kirk in the Hills. In the words of my friend Edwin, is my microphone not working? Good morning, family of Kirk in the Hills. Thank you, that is an encouragement. Friends, um, I make my home in Savannah, Georgia, but coming to Michigan really is coming back to my roots. Um, I was born on the other side of the state in Muskegon, Michigan, and met my husband at Kelvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then I hesitate to share with you that I did one of my graduate degrees at Michigan State University. But our family is equally divided between U of M and Michigan State, so I feel very much at home in, in this context. I've not lived in Michigan for a number of years. I've spent um, the first 21 years of our marriage in Houston, Texas, and then went over to Atlanta, Georgia for another 19 years before ending up in Savannah. And what brought us into those places was, first of all, archaeology and art history, which I taught. But then God kind of got a hold of me and brought me into mission. And so I spent two um, stints, we might say, serving the local church, first at First Presbyterian Church in Houston and then at Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, where my role as the director of global mission was to engage congregations more deeply in what God was doing around the world. And that was my jumping off to the Outreach Foundation, which is an independent mission organization that's been around for now going on our 44th year to help connect people here with God's work around the world. Thank you for that. And in doing that, that connection to God's work around the world, we hope that in partnering with the global church in its call to mission and ministry, God does something with us and through us. Let me back up and start by getting into our topic for today about being mutually encouraged, why we need the global church and why the global church needs us. And that philosophy, we might say, is not mine, it's not the Outreach Foundation, it's not the mission of the Presbyterian Church, it's what scripture teaches us. And so friends, I share with you this word today from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the first chapter beginning in the eighth verse, where Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed through the world. There back in the first century, Paul made it his business to know what was going on with the church around the world. For God whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, says Paul, that I may share with you some spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Mutually encouraged by one another's faith is the way that we now understand the church's call to mission. For many years, we Westerners, particularly we Presbyterians, thought of mission as sort of a one-way street of us going out into the world and doing good and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and indeed, missionaries did that and died in the process. But we now understand mission more deeply, I think, and we live into these words of the Apostle Paul, that mission is about mutuality, that when God sends us out into the world, it is as much for what needs to happen with us as what happens through us. Reciprocity, the mission of God is one of mutual encouragement. And what I want to share with you today is a little bit of my experiences, some stories that I can share that for me, lessons I have learned from the global church. I spend a lot of time out in the world, um, taking people out particularly to the Middle East and Cuba. Those are the things in my portfolio at the Outreach Foundation, the Presbyterian presence in all of those places, by the way. And whenever I travel, I don't travel alone. I bring with me members of congregations from around the United States to come and meet the church, to be an encouraging presence, and to learn from the faithful witness of the church in those places. And so the lessons, the stories that I want to share with you are born from firsthand experience. I'm usually on the road overseas five to six times a year. In fact, if God so wills, um, a week from today, my plane will be touching down in Beirut, Lebanon, where I'll be gathering a team together to head into Syria to stand with our Presbyterian family in Syria. And before the year is out, another such journey to Egypt to be with our Presbyterian family there and right after Thanksgiving to Cuba to do the same. We have a big, wide family that is Presbyterian. And on World Communion Sunday, we call that to mind in very intentional ways. And very appropriately, we mark that occasion not just in remembering that we are one family, but in sharing in the great family supper, which we will do in a little bit. So friends, what I want to share with you are two things, two examples that I hope will be helpful in understanding how God calls us into the church and in our partnership with the global church. To begin with, with this question, why do we need the global church? Why do we need the global church? And the first thing that I would share with you, one of the most important lessons I learned about why we need the global church is that they model for us perseverance. They model for us perseverance. Perseverance is another one of the great theological concepts that Paul talked about constantly. And perseverance, we all have an understanding of that as a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson would say, a long faithful journey of belief. But for Paul, perseverance was more than that. It implied a journey of faith that had difficulties along the way. As he talks about a little bit later in the same book when he says we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. 
faithfulness over a difficult time. I've learned this lesson in many ways, but one of the stories, one of the examples that always comes to mind is the picture of a Chinese pastor that I met in 2007. Her name was Reverend Wu, and I met her in the northeastern part of China as I was on my way into North Korea to meet with, yes, the church in North Korea. There is a church in North Korea. It's not underground, it's right there on the streets of the capital city. We were on our way into North Korea. But we had time in China to get all of our papers in order, and we spent time with one of the leaders of the church in Shenyang. Her name was Reverend Wu. When I met her, she was already 85 years old. She was only about five foot tall, and yet she had a faith that was 10 times that height. We asked Reverend Wu to share her story knowing that given her age, she had lived through an incredible history of God's work in China. And indeed, she shared with us about how she had been born in the 1920s when Christianity was on the rise. She said there were 7,000 missionaries in China in the 1920s. And she said it seemed like on every corner there was a church being built, a Christian hospital being erected. Christianity was flowing through the streets of China, but she said it changed dramatically in 1948 with the coming of the Communist Revolution. And at that time, all the missionaries were thrown out of China. Half of the church leadership left. She said, we carried on thinking, how much worse can it get? And little did they know that in another 20 years, the cultural revolution would come about through Mao Zedong, kind of a doubling down of communist ideology that basically said to it, the inhabitants of China, you don't need to know anything but the tenets of communism. Bibles were burned even into, into in um, libraries. The great works of literature taken out, burned in the street. All you need to know is this. And as Reverend U said what kept us alive were the Bible verses we had learned as children that we said back to each other and the hymns that we had memorized as part of a worshiping community we sang them back to each other. And just when it seemed that Christianity was being snuffed out in China, the spirit would begin to work again. And in 2007, as I talked with Reverend Wu, she was presiding over a church that was one of the fastest growing Christian presences anywhere in the world. We visited churches that had 10,000 people in attendance at them. Not only were Bibles not being burned, but Bibles were being printed and exported from China. And Reverend Wu's faith had persevered through that darkness. We need the global church because they model perseverance to us. But we also need the global church because they are on the front line of making Christ known in ways and in places we cannot. In Lebanon, our Presbyterian family there numbers about 20 congregations. The same in Syria. They are all part, by the way, of one synod, the National Evangelical Synod of Syria and Lebanon. But it is the story of the church in Lebanon that I want to share with you about being on the front line. When war broke out in Syria beginning in 2012 and lasting almost up until 2021, 
1.2 million Syrian refugees poured into this tiny country of Lebanon about the size of New Jersey. 1.2 million refugees. Lebanon was overwhelmed. Even though all of the international aid agencies rushed in, there was too much work to be done. And the church must always be asking the question, how is God calling us to be relevant in this awful situation. The church in Lebanon, as I said, is small. It's 20 congregations. They don't have a lot of resources. And as they met and prayed and discerned, what are the gifts that we have in our hands that we have been equipped with to serve? And very quickly, they came to the conclusion, we know how to do schools. The Presbyterians in Lebanon had run schools for 150 years, Christian schools. We know education. And so the Synod of Syria, Lebanon, over a very short period of time, began to open up, began to open up schools specifically for Syrian refugee children coming out of these camps, living in dark circumstances in some of the big cities. They did not have access to the school systems because there were just too many of them. And the Synod began to open up schools because they knew that these children not only needed education, but they needed a healing of the trauma that they had been. And the schools would not do that, but the church could. And so into these refugee schools, these little lives that had been disrupted by war, many of them had only known war, the church broke into that and began to gather these children in, and by extension, their families, to not only bring them hope and healing, but to share the news of the one who loves them without any reason. And so in those places of the frontier, we need the church because they can do what we cannot. But that is a reciprocal conversation, as I said, as Paul reminds us, to be mutually encouraged. And so we must also ask the question, why does the global church need us? And one of the things is a very obvious one, and that is we leverage resources for kingdom work, for the ministries of the church, often who are in the right place, but don't have the resources for ministry as they are being called. We leverage resources, and Pastor Edwin shared um, the good news of one of those outreach ministries that you have become involved with in this congregation. A number of years ago, as I began traveling to Iraq, 20-some years ago, began to know this congregation in ancient Nineveh, the town of Mosul. And Mosul would burst upon the scene of most Western consciousness because of war and because of the presence of ISIS, who had declared Mosul to be their capital in Iraq. The Presbyterian church in Mosul dates from 1840. It was the first Protestant church built throughout the Middle East. And after the destruction and desecration of that church by ISIS, the broader Presbyterian presence said to us, can you help us rebuild? And so the Outreach Foundation began to contact churches and partners to say, will you be part of this? And through a wonderful circumstance of brokering relationships that I could not even describe, it was the work of the Spirit, I began to meet Dr. Edwin Youssef and Nabil Youssef and Mazen El Saka 
who was from Mosul, whose father had been martyred by terrorists in 2006. And they said, we want to be part of helping the foundation, excuse me, be part of the outreach foundation helping to rebuild the church in Mosul, we will join with you. And through your generous gift joined with others, that church has risen up from the ashes. If you want to hear more of that story, invite you to that lunch at the end of the morning. This other lesson, though, I will share with you. We leverage resources, but one of the other gifts that we have as the church in the West, a simple thing, but one not to be discounted, we are mobile, and we can go to them when they cannot go to us. You know, we have this magic ticket to the world. It's called the American U.S. Passport, and it can take you anywhere you are determined enough to go. For pity's sakes, it took me to North Korea. We can go to the global church when they cannot come to us. And one of the vivid examples that I will share with you to end with brings us to this table that we are about to share. Back in 2011, I was about ready to return to Iraq. I had been absent with my groups for close to seven years because beginning in 2003 with the war in Iraq, Iraq had become very stable, all uh, very unstable with all of the terrorist groups rushing in. And the church there said, no, don't come yet, don't come yet, don't come yet. In 2011, the elder of the Presbyterian Church in Basra, Iraq, way down in the south, said, Marilyn, come, it is now okay to come. And as we were preparing to bring a group, Elder Zuhair Fathala, who, by the way, was the acting pastor in that place and has been for probably most of the 22 years I have known this church, 24 years I have known this church, because it's not a place that holds a pastor for a long time. It is a hard scrabble place. But their elder Zuhair Fathala, by the way, his day job was as a reconstructive surgeon and an instructor in the medical college. Every Sunday he entered the pulpit to preach, to hold that congregation together. And as we were on our way, I said to elder Zuhair, how can we be most helpful when we come? And he said, do you have some pastors coming with you? And I said, yeah, we actually have four of our group of maybe eight. And he said, please, can you have one of them preach. I am weary of preparing the message. And I said, they will fight for the honor to be in that pulpit. And he said, will you also have one of them do communion? Because we have not had communion for two years. Now that gave me a little pause and I gently said, now Zuhair, I'm, I'm an elder also. And I know that in the absence of ordained clergy, you can conduct the communion service. And he said, Marilyn, I know that, and we tried. But people were uncomfortable. Culturally, they wanted a pastor to preside at the communion table. He said, so we just stopped. And I said, well, Zuhir, not only will you have one pastor, you will have all four pastors to do communion. And I will never forget that morning because I was sitting out here in the pews like you, looking at my four pastors arranged around the communion table and what they would tell me later is something I never forget every time I stand in front of the communion table to take the elements. They said as they unveiled the communion elements, cameras came up to record that moment.
And as the bread and the wine was lifted to be consecrated, people began to weep. They began to weep to know they would soon partake in the broken body and shed blood. And I'm thinking, when is the last time communion made me weep? Did it ever weep? Was it ever that precious to me as it was now to the people of the Basra community? And that happened, my friends, because we had done nothing more than show up to be an encouragement to them. Friends, as we gather around this table today, and as the invitation comes to Christ's table, please try to envision this table literally from north to south to east and west as our family of faith gathers around this family table to give witness to the only good news that Jesus is Lord and we are his children. Thanks be to God.